Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All. Today we convene this month's Legal Roundtable where we delve into some of the latest regional and national news stories pertaining to the law. There's lots to discuss, so joining me to talk about it in studio are Bill Freivogel, professor of, school, of the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, and Brenda Talent, CEO of the Show Me Institute. All of you, welcome, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. So let's uh, delve into probably the thorniest and the most uncomfortable thing to talk about. We're going to talk about abortion. Um, uh, although I want to make it clear, we're talking about the legal issues around it, not the morality of it or maybe the overarching issue. But specifically, it seems like what happens a lot of times is that opponents of abortion uh, who don't think they can necessarily completely eliminate its legality try to regulate it into non-existence, and that seems to be what's going on late, latest uh, regarding the uh, the uh, abor- the last abortion clinic in Missouri. So, uh, open it up to the panel. Where is this from a legal standpoint in terms of looking at um, to to what level is it acceptable legally to put such restrictions on a facility that it essentially makes it impossible to operate? Well, I guess we'll find out. Uh, but <laughs> but the 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 state court judge in this case has basically given the state until a week from Friday, till the 21st, to either uh, renew the license or reject the license for the Planned Parenthood Clinic, which is the last abortion clinic uh, operating in Missouri. Uh, and um, uh, if, they, if the state extends the license, then I guess the, the, the dispute goes away to a certain extent. If they deny the license, then the Planned Parenthood can appeal Uh, to an administrative hearing commission, uh, and that would be then the next step. I suspect that during that appeal, if there is such an appeal, that... uh, uh, that uh, that the, that there would be a you know a stay of some sort that per- would permit them to continue to operate while the appeal went forward. And from a, a legal standpoint, when you're talking about licensing in Missouri, we we have licensure and regulatory provisions that govern literally hundreds of occupations and businesses. And so, you know, it's not just this type of business that can be impacted by the regulatory scheme that exists in Missouri. You know, just last year, when we talked about hair braiders, if you didn't meet certain licensing requirements, you couldn't braid hair. So uh, from a standpoint of you ask the question, can Missouri impose these licensing requirements? They do, and they do it across hundreds of occupations. However, there's no Supreme Court decision that guarantees the right to somebody to get their hair braided. <laughs> and well, one would say you have a right to earn a living. Sure, you know. but, I, but I guess... It, uh, because the Supreme Court has ruled on a number of things that's saying that certain laws are too restrictive and that they in essentially impinge upon the rights that were granted in Roe v. Wade. So to what extent does do the courts follow that lead on related but not directly relevant decisions? And to what extent do they push well, again, it forward? Again, you're say, looking at a particular trade or business. So mm-hmm. this is a particular clinic. From the standpoint of if you're talking about the procedure itself, you can't prevent a doctor at a medical facility from performing that if they're licensed to do so. So, again, this whole licensing scheme can be applied 
to particular buildings, to particular trades, or particular individuals. So when we're talking about licensing for Planned Parenthood, it's about that particular building and their operation. It is not, you know, a general across the board, because we're denying you this, then there will be no more abortions in the state of Missouri. No, there'll be no more, uh, there won't be an abortion clinic, mm -hmm. but abortions will still be allowed in the state to be performed by doctors so, in other so facilities. from my perspective, there are at least three legal issues when we're talking about abortion in the month of June of 2019. There's this, this question about whether this new law is constitutional and, you know, and we have a, a Supreme Court that may be moving a little bit on it. I think, as you said, Brenda, you can, um, you can put in licensing requirements, but like in the whole women's health case that came out, what, three or four years ago, the, the, the state of Texas was trying to put some Rest restrictions in place and licensing requirements. And they said, that, well, this is too restrictive. We're not going to allow this. Now, whether or not the Supreme Court today would say the same thing, we don't know. Um, so one you have, is this law constitutional? Then the second issue is kind of what you both talked about, which is this p particular licensing of this particular clinic. And there's this procedure and how it will be appealed. And then the third issue is the referendum attempt. There's an attempt to have a referendum that would repeal the Missouri law. And so far, um, Secretary of State Ashcroft has said, we, I cannot accept those uh, petitions because the law that was passed had an emergency position, provision, which um, his reading says he can't accept these. That's being challenged by the ACLU. Well, um, I, think, I think that's in Cole County, so we should get some kind of um, uh, judgment on that pretty soon. Um, you know, the question is the emergency provision was, I think, for one part, which before you would have to, minors would have to get one parent's consent. Now they have to do, get two parents' consent. Um, so lots of issues, and I don't know that any of the answers are obvious. <laughs> well, 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 go ahead. Well, go I on. mean, uh, in the, on the referendum uh, issue, uh, so this one provision, which, yeah. which uh, the, the legislature apparently put in, uh, to go into effect immediately in order to avoid there being a chance for the for the people to reject the to uh, to reject the law, um, you know that it's interesting that that particular provision requiring two parent two parent notice uh, was one of the things that was specifically found to be unconstitutional in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is still good law. So um, uh, you know, so so it's a little it's a little hard for me to believe. That uh, and, uh, that um, a uh, election official by the name of Ashcroft really has his hands tied and is not uh, not able to let the people uh, go ahead and vote up or down on the on the very strict uh, abortion law that the the Missouri legislature passed. Well, and the court will be able to decide whether it was really subject to an emergency or not, and whether it applied. <laughs> to the entire law because right. that emergency clause was just to that specific provision, not for the rest of the law. The rest of the law would go into effect in August right. sometime. So the, I, I suspect if I were looking into my crystal ball, I would predict that a court at some point would say that actually that emergency clause, if it's valid, would relate only to that one provision. But it's also completely possible for them to find that there wasn't an emergency. Let's, yeah. go, let's go back to the licensing issue of the Planned Parenthood Clinic for just a second because, um, you know, re asking doctors to talk about safety issues is completely within the scope of the licensing law. However, 
they're asking it of the doctors at this particular abortion clinic, and they probably <coughs> and they aren't asking it for someone the doctors at a a podiatrist's day surgery center. So the, the selective enforcement of the licensing requirements. Can the court look at that part of it and say, sure, your licensing law is totally legal, but when it's not enforced the exact same way with all of the people who are applying for a license and you're you're only enforcing pieces of it where you feel like <laughs> there's an issue that is tangential that you want to address, will the, will the courts go that deep into the application of the law? I mean, I think if there if there's uh, substantial evidence, as I think Planned Parenthood would probably argue that the, that the law is being uh, that that sort of neutral uh, regulations are being uh, enforced in a way that's putting again an undue burden on the operation of the clinic and the delivery of the of the uh, right to an abortion. That I think the, the courts could go there. I mean, it's, it's sort of a complicated situation where apparently some of the Planned Parenthood doctors, you know, have answered the questions that the state wants to ask, and but the but there are some private uh, physicians who perform abortions at Planned Parenthood who have been advised by their lawyer not uh, to answer questions from the state. The reason for that, apparently, if I understand this all correctly from the court documents and from the from the stories that have been written, is that there has been a a requirement for some time for an extra, for for a pelvic examination, uh, and that that regulate uh, before the uh, several days before the abortion, but that 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 regulation, even though it's been on the books, has not been enforced, and it was not being conducted. So these these doctors now, Planned Parenthood has has said, we will we will do this additional uh, pelvic examination, even though we don't think it's. Uh, required, and we'll make sure that the doctor who does that pelvic examination conducts the abortion as the state requires. But uh, but this has not been enforced for years, and so if these if these private doctors go before or go before the state and say, well, you know, this wasn't being enforced, and we weren't doing it, uh, so could they be prosecuted? Uh, could they be taken before their you know could their uh, medical license be? Be uh, you know questioned before uh, the, the before a medical board, uh, so I can see why they're getting that uh, uh, legal advice and why they would be reluctant to testify. We have to go to a break in just a moment, and we'll move on from this topic. But the last question on this: clearly, a number of states that are opposed to abortion uh, have passed laws in different with just enough different wording that they are dangling a bunch of hooks in the water trying to get the Supreme Court to take one of these to possibly overturn Roe v. Wade. So I would like all of your predictions. Will the court take one of these cases and either reaffirm or overturn Roe v. Wade, or will they only take the cases that address these issues at the periphery that could have significant impacts on whether abortion is possible, even if it continues to be legal? I don't think the, the I don't think the Chief Justice Roberts wants to take a case that would overturn Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood, but I wouldn't be surprised if the you know court continues to allow additional regulations that that make it very difficult to operate abortion clinics and to uh, provide uh, abortion services in in some states that oppose it, like Missouri. I I would tend to agree um, with Bill and. Uh, my only addition to that would be I think we'll see decisions that 
begin to reflect more and more deference to the states, to allow the states to have a say in that so that the states can formulate more of that policy. And I think it's worth uh, reminding people that if Roe v. Wade was overturned, that doesn't mean abortion's illegal. It means that the states get to decide whether it exactly. is or not. That's exactly right. And I agree with both of them. I don't see overturning Roe v. Wade just kind of pushing back a little bit on the on the previous Supreme Court cases. And then and then I think you're going to see these states become real battlegrounds more so than they have now, um, both sides energized. Coming up on the program, we will talk about racist Facebook posts by St. Louis uh, police officers. And uh, we would like to invite you into that conversation. If you have a question or comment about that topic, give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK, or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or me- email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We need to take a break, but we'll be back shortly to continue our legal roundtable. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air, our legal roundtable with uh, Mark Smith from Washington University, Brenda Talent from the Show Me Institute, and Bill Freivogel from Southern Illinois University. Let's move on to St. Louis police officers behaving badly on social media. Um, Saint, some St. Louis uh, uh, police officers are on uh, desk duty um, after some uh, racist Facebook posts that they put out there, and an investigation is underway. Uh, from a legal standpoint, what does this do to the St. Louis Police Department? What does it say about free speech, and what does it say about cases that these officers may have been involved in? Well, so I'll, I'll speak to the free speech because I think that's a, a lot of people say, well, don't they have uh, First Amendment rights? They can say whatever they want. And the Supreme Court has recognized that when you're a government employee, you don't have unlimited free speech rights, that, you know, you can still they'll, they'll look at your comments. Are you talking about um, something of public concern? And then they'll kind of balance the the employee's interest in making these statements against the interest of the state in providing the, these public services. So I would think, you know, if, an, if a police officer in his private role uh, is saying, I think Kim Gardner is too soft on crime, that might be protected speech. But if they're saying something like some of the things we heard about before, the, uh, let's go out and crack some heads, things, I mean, that undermines their ability to be police officers in the community. I don't think that's protected speech. And, you know, we, um, in, a, in a private work setting, you know, WashU can tell me what I can and can't say because they're not the government. The only reason it's an issue here is because the police department is part of the government. Mm-hmm. And the government, the First Amendment prohibits the government from restricting speech. But like I said, it's not unlimited for an employee who's, who's representing the state and um, doing their job. Well, the, the other thing here is obviously for these individuals, uh, part of the issue will be because they're probably a member of the police union, is what do this collective bargaining agreements provide? Does their conduct constitute just cause for discipline or firing or other disciplinary action? And, um, you know, when I think about the First Amendment, and Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I always think of it in, in the context for our public employees is that you you can't be fired because of your political views unless you're connecting it to your employment. So, um, and part of that is when did the postings occur? Were they on the job? Were they, you know, off duty at the time? But having said that, 
The other aspect of the First Amendment issue is, is the employer enforcing their, their regulation or discipline in, from a neutral perspective, you know, it's across the board uniform. They're not, you can't pick and choose if you've made comments that, you know, arguably are protected by the First Amendment. I can't pick and choose which employees I'm going to go after. I've got to enforce my, my, my perspective enforcing that on a neutral perspective. Content neutral, mm-hmm. right, right. And yeah, I think a lot depends too on what the St. Louis Police Department's rules and regulations. My understanding is they had some kind of general rules about conduct that uh, unbecoming a, poli- a police, police officer. officer. And now mm-hmm. I think they're becoming a little more specific about you can't post on social media. And I think a lot of police departments have, have got out ahead of this even before the St. Louis Police Department. Yeah, as Mark says, the rules have changed. They've got some more specific social media rules now. And so, you know, one question will be, you know, when was the posting? Uh, was it un- was it when it was this old sort of, sort of general vague rule of conduct on becoming a police officer? Or was it under the new more specific social media rules that went into effect, I think, last year sometime? Um, you know, some of these posts have related to um, uh, the police sort of celebrating the kettling of the protesters, right. mm-hmm. um, you know, back uh, in September, two Septembers ago, uh, you know, how, how great, how great that was to have kettled them and, 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 uh, and, you know, beaten a few of the people. There's a, there's a particular, uh, a sergeant who has, uh, uh, been identified as being the, Having the the anonymous Facebook profile of Ron Nighthawk, who is attached to a lot of the, um, you know, it's like pro kind of Confederacy, uh, mm-hmm. some of these comments about the kettling, uh, and um, so I mean, this is, yeah, they've got they, they have a, they have a free speech right, but it's uh, you know as as police officers, you know, they, they clearly they clearly can't contain they can't say. Um, you know, we, we've got to arrest all the black people in, in, in the city of St. Louis they, 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 and still, still keep their job, whereas they could go, whereas a private citizen could go on a street corner and say that. Right. And from an employer's standpoint, you would want the police force to be able to take appropriate action because these com- if these comments, and many of them appear to do so, compromise the ability for these individuals to execute in their office then why would you have them as an employee? But again, you have the collective bargaining agreement sure. that it might offer protections. The other aspect of it, though, is, is the fact that you raised the question from a standpoint of with respect to individuals who've been arrested, whether that could impact yeah. how their particular cases are processed in light of any kind of animus or discriminated, mm-hmm. discriminatory motive that might have affected the officer's judgment in making that arrest. Even a bad lawyer would see that if any of these allegations led to, to much more, or even if they don't, you've got an appeal built in. Exactly. You, you need to pursue that. Yeah, well, so if there's an anti-Muslim post and the and the officer arrested your client and your client is Muslim, you're going to just say, well, you, you didn't, you arrested mm-hmm. them, you framed them because they were Muslim. Or if there was, if you're alleging they police brutality and there's some comments on there, let's go out and bust some heads. Well, your client just, or your the police officer just said he wanted to do this. So. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that the, I'm always intrigued in these places where the law and the practical application of it may be at odds. Because even if it is determined that these posts were within their rights, either, you know, from a First Amendment pr- point of view or from a collective bargaining point of view, 
it, it still would have zero ability to address the very real impact that this would have on a community that already has more racial strife and more problems in the justice system related to race than you can imagine. Well, I, right? think, I think that's, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a valid observation. I mean, you know, the First Amendment protects the speech that people hate. <laughs> yeah. And, and collective bargaining can sometimes protect employee behavior that we don't, you know, we're not happy about. Uh, and, you know, that's too bad. And, you, and uh, 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 but I, you know, I, I think the most, the, the, the most abusive of, of these comments, I think the police department should have the tools to do something about it. Let's take a quick phone call. Jerry from O'Fallon, Missouri uh, has a comment on this. Jerry, uh, thank you for calling and welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Good afternoon. Uh, this is kind of outside of the scope of the discussion that's going on right now, but I have many friends over the course of my life, past and present in law enforcement, and uh, I've the, among the vast majority of people who really are there to serve and protect and take their job seriously and their duties to their community are a few individuals that, just as the behavior you're discussing in this particular incident, that tend to bring um, uh, paint the you know paint the majority who take their work seriously um, as uh, as people that shouldn't be trusted or or are capable of this kind of behavior and I guess in the overall scope of things I have never understood why that vast majority doesn't do more to uh, essentially self-police I know in private conversations with Almost everyone I've known who's worked on the street or worked in any level will say that they have worked with people that really don't belong in uniform. But I never hear that from uh, the people who could actually make a difference. Jerry, thank you very much for your call. And, you know, you're talking to a journalist and lawyer, so we all know about one or two bad apples in our profession that can paint uh, the entire profession mm -hmm. in a negative light. So we're certainly sympathetic to what you're saying. But I guess uh, the overall issue is the blue wall of silence and and, you know, you talked about self-policing, you know, self-policing is, is to what extent is it the responsibility of, you know, the union or the other people to weed out this kind of behavior and not make it a legal issue? Well, I mean, police, I, I think the caller makes a really good point. Yeah. And, and there has been too much of that, uh, you know, protect your buddy. Uh, and anybody in any profession understands where that comes from, but it, it, when we're talking about having taken an oath of office to, uh, uh, an oath to, uh, you know, to uphold people's rights and and, and the law, you, you really can't have room for that kind of that kind of behavior. But there is an inspector's office in any police department. You know that their job. Uh, they're not always the most popular people in a police department. Their job is to enforce uh, police regulations. So um, there, there is a process for doing that, and I, th I think they're the people who are going to have to take steps here. And I guess St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, you know, this also would be relevant to, to her. Public relations and, um, and uh, uh, the law are not the same thing. They're, they're definitely different in a lot of ways. Um, let's move on to another topic. Uh, St. Louis Alderman Jeffrey Boyd, in an email to Treasurer Tashara Jones, insists that he use his personal email address for official business. That's raised a lot of questions about the state's sunshine laws. And also Governor Parsons using First Amendment as an exception to the sunshine law to blot out names of people who contact him. So with both of these things coming up, to what extent is Missouri's sunshine law 
under attack or selective interpretation? <laughs> well, it is under attack. It's always under attack. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I thought, I thought the alderman had a pretty good argument until I read what Dave Rowland, uh, the, you know, a lawyer who's uh, quoted in some of the stories about this, said. And what, what, what Dave Rowland said, so this, the question is, you know, Boyd's using his personal email. But, but, just could, for the, but for the factual record, he has said in at least that thing to, to Sher Jones, you can, you can include my government one. I just check my personal one more. So I think, I think it changes Roland's analysis a little bit, don't you think? If you, if well, you, I mean, it depends. I mean, it depends you don't on where the outgoing <laughs> comes from because if the incoming goes to both, then you can well, then you true. can request yeah. the records yeah. for yeah, what's yeah. Com- incoming. But if the outgoing is only from your personal right. one, then you don't don't get to see any of his outgoing oh, ones. But you can actually, if it looks like the incoming is in fact one that relates to public business, you definitely know that it exists and you can specifically try to get it. But that's a lot of effort to yes. go through. Yeah. Whereas if you were just getting the public email, you would get everything without having to, to go through the but I, those I, channels. Yeah, I interrupted Bill. Well, I, I, was saying, I was just saying I was just saying that Dave Rowland said that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get uh, an alderman's uh, personal email because an alderman is not the kind of official who can sort of wield power on his own. He's part of a larger body. And so, therefore, the sunshine uh, law would not necessarily apply except, to his personal email. Except if the emails are going to a majority of a quorum, <laughs> yeah, like, and that okay. personal email is one of the people that's part of a majority of a quorum, then you could make the case that that their yeah. co- communications are subject to this because they could be part of a majority of a quorum on yeah, an issue. They, this and then you have to give notice of the meeting and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I think you should become a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I'm only good at journalism law because I took a few classes, and I wouldn't even say good at it. But I guess I'm, I'm sensing a thread here, by the way, in the first three topics that we've talked about is a difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law is that, that um, and it's nothing new that people are trying to get around the letter of the law to get to where they want to be. So does the Sunshine Law need to be more specific, or do we need to just adjudicate various challenges and ways to try to get around it as well, they think, come up. I think another factor is changing technology. You know, mm-hmm. we, we have a system of law that, uh, you know, we rest on previous decisions, and it works very well unless you have changing so- social mores or you have changing technology. And the law can and granted, email's been around for a while, but the, the law is still kind of catching up to how do we, how do we deal with this? D- do five people on an email listserv constitute a meeting mm-hmm. of, of the nine of the committee members, you know, and I don't know that that's well settled yet. You, well, you identified it as an issue. I think it is an issue. Well, and, and, you know, but this has been going on well before there was uh, any kind of technology. I think that for decades, city councils have been doing things where the city manager will meet with groups of council people in groups of two because it isn't the majority of a quorum. <laughs> so they yeah. will go over things, you know, in briefings with groups of two so that they don't violate a Sunshine Law or a FOIA law or an Open Meetings Act uh, law. And, and so... Uh, I think the the idea of getting around the letter of the law to keep things quiet has been going on well before any of us had uh, Elm yeah. or Pine or even the basic old time email. <laughs> well, I think thing. that's I think that's true, and I think it'll go on for, uh, you know continually. Uh, and the Sunshine Law and Freedom of Information Act acts in those states have to be you know constantly amended. The other the other case you brought up. Uh, Governor Parson saying that he's not going to give out the he's going to yeah. blot out the names of people who write. 
uh, you know, constituents who who write to him because, you know, based on a First Amendment argument that he wants to protect uh, protect them from being, you know, hassled and divulged for communicating with him. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not a crazy argument, but it's a little bit of an extension of. Um, it requires a little bit of uh, a little bit of work to get there. Um, there was a case back way back in the civil rights era uh, where the NAACP was found not to have to give up uh, the names uh, of members because they would be hassled in southern in southern towns. Uh, I don't think that's exactly what we're talking. We're talking about the situation we're talking about here. The Supreme Court in Citizens United said the the names of con- contributors to super PACs could be. Uh, uh, required to be disclosed, um, but the Congress uh, has chosen so, not to. So let me just re- re- respond to two, because you two are journalists, and you've, you're assuming bad motives on, as somebody right. who's worked on a governmental, do not underestimate ignorance and incompetence, because <laughs> because a lot of times it's just, hey, we got to get this done, let's do it, and then we forgot, oh, we're supposed to send out a notice, or uh, I'm sending you, and then I include you, and I didn't even think that that's three people. And and so I don't know that it's always this grand plan to, you know, keep the media in the dark. Just I mean, you, I'm sure well, that happens well, sometimes, just I, usually. And, well, and I would add one other component, because Mark mentioned it with social media, et cetera. I mean, I think there is an element where there are competing interests here, and we, we might be dismissive of some of them, but I think some of them are pretty serious because we have seen instances, I think of that case with the uh, the CEO or uh, the president, whatever his title was, of Mozilla, where he was basically fired because he had made a contribution to a PAC oh. at a time. It was a, a PAC where they were defining marriages between a man and woman, and it was way back when, when actually that was the norm, mm-hmm. the accepted norm. But when it became came out uh, came to light, he was basically run out of town on a rail. And so I do think there's an element where more and more people are sensitive to what can happen to them based upon their communications. And and I'll take an example. Let's just say I want to contact my elected, my, my legislator, and I want to complain about the local licensing office. And I'm very specific about my complaints. And, you know, do I want my name to be out there so that the people who own that facility and know because I go to that office are going to get, you know, I, and that's a sort of a silly, but you can take other issues that can be fairly significant where I want to petition my government and I want to be able to do so freely without well, without worry of retribution or retaliation. Yeah. So how do you balance those different interests? And one way is you give the substance of the communication and you can at least know, well, are these proper communications or not? Or you give the name and then you can figure out, hmm, maybe that person's contacting the governor a little too much. Maybe we need to dig deeper. I'd like to wrap this up by saying, Mark, you mentioned that it's not something to try to uh, keep from the media. I would like to say that, just remind everyone that Sunshine Laws and Freedom of Information Act laws are about the public. And if you look at the number of Freedom of Information Act requests that go into a government body, ones from norm, average yeah. everyday people dwarf the number that comes from the media. But don't forget incompetence and ignorance. You know, they're, they're <laughs> very important. That's why I don't believe in conspiracy. Point taken. We need to take another quick break, uh, but we'll be back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 
Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All, and our legal roundtable is with us today. I'm talking with legal experts Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Brenda Talent. Let's start with when is an attorney not an attorney? Um, there was a uh, someone in Madison County that was uh, pretending to be an attorney and not licensed by the bar, and uh, that uh, raises all sorts of very interesting right. legal questions. Um, maybe let's start with uh, a very basic one, and that is, how can you make sure that someone who says they're an attorney is an attorney? You can contact the bar, which they say they're a member of, so Missouri, if you're a member of the Missouri Bar, and in her case, the Illinois Bar, and ask, is so-and-so in good standing with the bar? And the bar will tell you if they're in good standing or not. And it, I guess the adding to this, though, is that she was a practicing assistant public defender, <laughs> um, which, which I think makes it even more uh, baffling. It, it is troubling, but think about when you hire, when, when employers do hiring of new lawyers, um, you graduate from law school in May, um, you study for the bar exam, you take the bar exam the last two weeks in July. Most or many students will have a job lined up by the time they graduate, and it's with the idea that you're going to take the bar and pass it. Um, you, one would hope that the employer would would check that out. Um, I remember Brenda and I were at Brian Cave at the same time, and there was a lawyer in Chicago. Remember a big firm, and they found he was a partner, and he had never passed the bar exam. Graduated from top, and they came around and they wanted to see all our <laughs> diplomas, <laughs> and we had a, uh, to because they were doing their due diligence yeah. to make sure uh, people. But but for the public, you know, to become a lawyer, and, and you know, it's by state. You have to go to a law school that's accredited. Then you have to pass the bar exam. Um, I think the well, bar passage rate. One qualification mark. Not in California. You don't have to go well, you, to credit. You don't you have, to go, have to pass, you pass the, bar. the bar exam. <laughs> right. And then and you have to take an ethics exam. And then you have to do continuing legal education. And, like, you know, so just because, and you have to pay the dues every year. So just because, you know, I passed the bar and I went to law school, you know, it's been a while ago. I could have fallen out of um, you know, I'm, I always say I'm a recovering lawyer. I'm not a real lawyer. But, but <laughs> you know, if, you, I, if you're coming to me for legal advice, you would want to check me out. Well, I'm you sure might not want to go to him for you wouldn't law go to me. advice. You know? <laughs> I, have a, I like to say I have a private practice, very private. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I guess that, that I'm thinking about, you know, when I was hired here as an UMSL employee, they got my college transcripts. They, they did a background check on me. They talked to my junior high English teacher about some vocabulary assignment. No, they didn't do that. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think about the rigor that some people go through to get hired in jobs that, quite frankly, are probably not quite as important as public defender. And yet that happened. Um, is it is it a one off or is it is does it raise legitimate concerns about um, the legal system and how we're hiring public defenders? I, I think it's a one off. What do you think? You have I, to put I, your bar number when you do pleadings. Well, okay, so I'm not sure how I'm going to go back that. to my little rant about licensing. I mean, just because you're <laughs> licensed doesn't mean that you're really good at what you do, well, that's right? True, yeah. So to some extent, I believe it is sort of a, a consumer beware. Now, and the whole part of the bar, part of being a member of the bar is you're telling the public, I have certain skills. But the reality is, is that if you took a lawyer who knows partnership taxation and as the expert in the nation and then said to them represent that criminal defendant that you don't want that could be malpractice yeah. I mean yeah. it really could so um, I, what I don't understand is what I would consider the due diligence of the public defender's office it, I mean yeah. I 
I would think you would do some just preliminary background check to know that. And then the other question is, what's going to happen to her cases? Yeah. You know, and again, I suspect that if you got a good result, nothing's going to happen to that case. But if you got a bad result, you're coming back and saying, I didn't have adequate representation. I don't know. If the prosecutor uh, didn't get what they wanted, you know, they, they could say, well, this unlicensed uh, attorney uh, took, uh, you know, did some unquestionable this, things. This unlicensed get... lawyer beat me? I don't yeah. know that they want to be... <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've seen lawyers fall on their sword for less. Yeah, well, for, for less. Um, let's move on to something that may be more than a one-off, and that is Joel Courier's live tweeting of details from a closed court hearing that ended up in a contempt issue. Bill. So Joel Courier is... Uh, uh, an aggressive legal courts reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Uh, and uh, the case uh, in was th- this all occurred back in April 12th. Um, there was a hearing on whether or not a Antonio Taylor was mentally competent to stand trial for shooting Baldwin police officer Michael Flamian and leaving him paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, Roboto decided to... Uh, that uh, well, there was a motion from the public defender's office uh, filed, I guess, late the previous week to close the hearing. Uh, courier arrives in uh, in the courtroom, and the judge says she's uh, uh, considering closing the hearing, um, and she g- gives him a an opportunity to make the legal argument as to why <laughs> why the hearing should should be open, which I guess he does to the best of his ability. The public defender reaffirms that they want the hearing closed. She closes it. Uh, no, at this point, post-dispatch, uh, lawyers know nothing about this. Um, there's been no, uh, I, think, I think the thing that Judge Roboto, the question about the way her process was not giving the post-dispatch a chance to send their lawyers there to make the argument that the hearing should be open. Under Missouri law, uh, under past cases that the post-dispatch has won in the Missouri Supreme Court, uh, public records, court, public court records and, uh, and court proceedings are presumptively open. A judge has to hold a hearing and find uh, you know, compelling reasons to close it. Judge Judge Roboto's. So at any rate, then Joel goes. So Joel is removed from the court. He goes outside, uh, listens at the door, uh, and uh, starts tweeting. This is another, you know, example of uh, where new technology can sometimes uh, get get a reporter get a reporter in trouble. Uh, it's not all Twitter is not always their best friend. Um, based on the the listening at the, the eavesdropping at the door and. Uh, the judge says um, he, she's going to hold him in indirect criminal contempt. Uh, there are additional, you know, which could, could require him to be put in jail. Uh, there are additional talks between the Post-Dispatch and, 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 and her. And eventually they, uh, Joel and the newspaper, um, apologize for the eavesdropping, uh, become civil contempt. Uh, and the Post-Dispatch thinks that things have pretty much uh, died down, and then uh, p- the court issues a press release uh, written by Christy Burleson, uh, former editorial page editor at the Post-Dispatch, my former boss, I should disclose. Joel, by the way, is on my softball team, so I've got all sorts of conflicts what here. What position does he play? He, well, he, he, most most memorably, he played short about 10 years ago, went out the 
Uh, I have to admit he was sort of a hot dog in this case. He went out to try to catch a, a ball from short and ran into our, our center fielder. If you read Bill's <laughs> online piece, uh, <laughs> just skip to the end where he goes through the conflicts. It's hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, he ended up with a broken nose, and we oh. spent the, the, the evening in, uh, in a hospital. At any rate, um, so Christy, the, Christy Burleson, the former editorial editor and the public information officer for the for the county, issues a press release on June 4th, and uh, you know that, that says this reporter, you know, is, is had con- has agreed that he, you know, engaged in contempt of court, and uh, here's what his tweet said, uh, now you know now deleted, and uh, this apparently just you know post dispatch people who thought, oh, we do, we've got this thing all settled, they were not happy. The editor Gilbert Bayon was not happy. Uh, and uh, say, pointed out that uh, you know there was that it was only because of Joel's efforts and the Post Dispatch's efforts uh, that the file in this case was available to the public. Could because uh, the court uh, the, the, apparently they have some sort of system that where there's comp- in, where a defendant is declared to be not competent to stand trial, which occurred in this Taylor case, the the, the, the record disappears from the CaseNet system. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, now it has reappeared. But at any rate, Gil, the editor of the Post-Dispatch pointed out that, uh, that the, there are serious issues about uh, whether, or, whether or not these – about removing these records from the public uh, court system. And there are serious issues about whether or not the judge should have closed this competency hearing. Apparently in the city and federal courts in the, uh, in the city, oftentimes these competency hearings are open. And as I say, the post-dispatch didn't have a chance to make a So is there, is there a lasting legal issue here that will affect other cases, or is this a one-off kerfuffle between a court and a, a media outlet? Well, I think there's a lasting uh, issue. I mean, the, 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 it wasn't just the Taylor case where the, the, the court records had disappeared from CaseNet. Um, I, I, in the story I wrote about this, I, I wrote about two other uh, files, one of which reappeared on, over the weekend and one of which just reappeared yesterday. Uh, so, you know, the, the, I, I th- you know, the issue of open courtrooms and doing justice uh, in the public view, I think that's, that's an issue that's going to be with us for a long time. Right, but I'm not sure this settled it. I mean, I think no. we're going to continue having. No, I don't think so either. You know. So does this just quiet down until there's a next instance of somebody doing something like this? I think so. Maybe so, yeah. Right. Let's talk about cash bail. Uh, the residents of uh, Some residents of St. Louis have been uh, desperately asking for uh, cash bail to be removed. A lawsuit was brought by Arch City Defenders uh, and a number of other groups, and, and a judge has ruled on it. Um, so where does this put the idea that uh, that uh, cash bail for especially minor offenses uh, can continue uh, in, in St. Louis? It puts some more rigorous requirements right. upon whether you can impose bail or not. It doesn't eliminate cash bail completely, but mm. it, it really, it, it, you know, we have new rules going into effect in Missouri generally on July 1 on the bail system, but in St. Louis City in particular, what it means is that there's going to have to be an actual consideration and findings on the record that by a clear and convincing evidence that there are safety issues involved before the cash bail is imposed and that the individual can't, in, you know, their appearance, the safety of the community can't be assured in other ways. 
Right. So Fleissig said they have to, you have to prove either they're danger to a community or there is no other way to ensure that they're going to show up. So it's part of this national trend to kind of swing back from saying to poor people, hey, you're just going to go to jail because you're poor. And, and I think a lot of people have realized maybe that's not the best way to run a criminal justice system. And, and so um, I think this is part of a, a larger national uh, movement. I think it's a very significant decision and one that, you know, is not just a one-off and is going, yeah, to, going exactly. to have quite a, bit of, quite a bit of impact. If you read her, uh, Judge uh, Fleissig's uh, decision uh, issuing this preliminary injunction ordering the city to stop doing this, I mean, there, there's some, some fairly startling things, such as the, the bond hearings up to this point uh, have been by, by video. And before the before the prisoners uh, go into the bond hearing, they are told by the sheriff's deputies, uh, "Don't ask any questions." Some hearing, uh, "Don't ask any questions." Uh, and if and, you know if you do, uh, you're, you're just, everything's just going to get delayed. And so, uh, you know, those bond hearings—that's a joke. Uh, and and obviously, you know, not not in compliance with with. Uh, constitutional requirements. So the, the, the other thing that this could have an effect upon is uh, the workhouse. You know, the workhouse is a big, mm-hmm. uh, a, a big issue. Uh, should it remain open? Um, you, do, I mean, we really don't want, uh, I mean, the, the bottom line is we don't want people who, um, uh, who aren't dangerous and who will reappear in court, will appear in court for their court cases. We don't want them spending, you know, weeks or months uh, in the workhouse uh, awaiting trial. I mean, they're presumed innocent. And it's part of a larger thing that I think both conservatives and liberals have agreed on, which is jail is not always the best solution. It costs the government a lot of money. Right. It, it costs the individual you know, a job or, or their time with their family, and maybe this is not the best way to run a uh, there, country. There are some very practical things the city is going to need to address because in her order she said that um, within seven days everyone who's currently incarcerated needs to have a hearing on their on their bail. When an individual is brought in for, for pretrial detention, they need to have a hearing within 48 hours. And, of course, the city is saying, where are the resources to do this? As a community, the question will be, okay, you better start prioritizing because are you going to set free individuals who actually are a threat to the community? I mean, we had that case back in April where the individual was on uh, cash bail and uh, a nonprofit came in and had them released, and they went out and beat their wife so that she died. Right. But so for every case like that, there's the, dozens of oh, like, no, no. you know, the number right. of people Hundreds, who are basically being held thousands. in prison because they're poor. It, yeah. it, we should be appalled as a society. That and that's just to happened. be clear, nobody's suggesting that guy should have got out yeah. um, because it sounded like he was a danger. But we need to we need to establish But even that. there, the procedure wasn't followed because yeah. if the procedure had been followed, perhaps the bail would have been set at so a higher, higher level right. and he wouldn't have gotten right. out. I would like to mention that on Friday's program on St. Louis on the Air, uh, we're going to have Inez Bordeaux, um, who is uh, one of the people who uh, is a big activist on this cash bail issue. Uh, She will be on the program. Also, uh, Ben Cohen from Ben & Jerry's that is getting involved in trying to bring attention to this. They will both be on our show on Friday. With more um, ice cream? Uh, maybe. Maybe <laughs> they will. Maybe they will be. And, and Inez Bordeaux's case, just as a quick preview, um, was uh, cash bail um, was uh, required for her for uh, um, a probation violation that was related to overdrawing unemployment benefits. 
So that person, she spent 30 days in the workhouse for that, and presumably the decision that we've been talking about today would address that. Um, also, by the Jimmy Edwards, the public safety director, uh, is also going to be on that show on Friday uh, to to address uh, that issue as well. Uh, I want to thank our guests for joining us today: Bill Freivogel, professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale; Mark Smith, associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University; and Brenda Talent, uh, CEO with the Show Me Institute. Uh, great to talk with you all, and thanks for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.